This Bible study podcast is a presentation of Sunset Presbyterian Church. For more information, log on to our website at www.sunsetpres.org. Good morning. Well, Happy New Year, ladies. Happy 2017. Have any of you made New Year's resolutions for this year? You can raise your hand if you have. And do you want to come share? No? (laughs) I don't blame you. I make one every year. And every year I look back on the year and go, dang, that lasted, what, three weeks? Um, I'm not the best at keeping my New Year's resolutions. And this year I made that same one again, and we'll see how I do. And if you want to know what mine is every year that I make, it's to exercise three times a week. You know, I did the whole make it achievable, make it something that's not overwhelming. Um, By exercise, it doesn't mean I have to do anything excruciating. It just means get outside and walk or something like that. And every year I fail. So we'll try it again this year. But when you think of the new year, you think of a fresh start. You think of... um, And that can sound appealing. It's a time of we get to reflect on where we've been and where we're headed. And when you think of new things, you kind of get excited, too. I don't know how many of you. Do you get excited when you think of new things? Thinking of, let's say, a new car, a new house, new jewelry, new furniture, a new vacation that you're going to go on, a new trip, new clothing, But these are all things that we acquire, and they kind of come under our control and integrate into our current lifestyle, and that can appreciate. But what about your excitement about other things that are new? We can be a little less ready to embrace other types of things that are new, like change, like starting a new job, like having your office move to a new location for those of you who are employed, or getting a new boss or a new coworker that you have to share your office space with, or maybe a new software system that you have to adjust to. Or how about in church? What about change there, Something new things? Right now we're facing getting a new worship leader or having a new worship, style of worship because our, worship, our current worship leader is, has left and gone to a new church. And while we're excited about him, this means change for us, and it makes us a little uncomfortable. Or how about learning a new song? Or perhaps the vision of the church is shifting and we get a little uncomfortable with that. It's not how it's always been. We're not used to that. Or how about if someone comes who's new to your small group and it changes the dynamics of your small group? These are changes that can make us uncomfortable. Or at home, like Kim said, we've had five snow days I don't like this new winter that we're having. (laughs) I have had three boys in my house a lot lately. Did I say three boys? (laughs) There is so much energy. And so many things are getting broken. (laughs) Um, Someone wrote, I wrote on my Facebook page, I posted on Sunday, I asked if anyone wanted three boys. And I got several responses. (laughs) But it was funny because someone said, oh, why don't you play a game of Monopoly with them that could go on for hours? And I'm like, my kids have the attention span of a fly. There's no way a Monopoly game could go on for hours. Yes, they would play for a while, but then there would be a wrestling match, a game of tag around the house, something would get broken, um, 
it would be chaos. And then, of course, we might go back to the game. But it's just not quite that Norman Rockwell picture you have of <laughs> sitting there playing Monopoly, drinking hot cocoa together. And my husband, one, um, my husband just this weekend said to me, Linz, he goes, I think we need a new laptop. And I said, I looked at him, kind of terror in my eyes. I'm like, no, no, we don't. And he's like, what is up with you? Why are you freaking out about this? And he says, our, new, our old laptop, he called it a dinosaur, because it's eight years old. Oh, my gosh. But he's right. In technology, that is like a dinosaur. And you think about it, with new laptops, they're thinner, they're faster, they have more memory, they have bigger hard drives. And, you know, as I was thinking about that, I'm, like, describing it, I'm like, man, wouldn't that be cool if Intel could make something for women to be faster, slimmer, new hard drives, <laughs> more memory? <laughs> that would be awesome. For me, I would like bigger hard drives. <laughs> but Jace was shocked at my response when I flat out said, no, I do not want a new laptop. I love our laptop. I love it just how it is. And he's like, what? what's your problem? Why? What's, what's the big deal with this? But I go, for me, this means I would have to learn new software. All my current software would have to be updated and upgraded. That means all my little menus on my laptop would change. That would drive me nuts. I would have to learn a new keyboard. I wouldn't type as fast. And right now, I'm pretty proficient on our laptop. Everything would have to be reconfigured. And that would stress me out as I go to my laptop several times for finances, for writing talks, for pictures, um, filing pictures, for creating things. So anyway, I talked him into waiting until June. <laughs> <laughs> then we can talk about it again. Basically, I freaked out, and he backed off. But whether you're experiencing something like that, like a laptop change at home, or something more significant in your life that's new, whether it's in your home life, your church life, or your job, or anywhere, these kind of changes are often met with anxiety or resistance, uh, reticence, because none of us like a change in our routines. We like the way we do things. We like things that are familiar. We like staying in our comfort zone. We like, it kind of gives us a sense of control when things stay the same. It's more predictable. When my kids go to school, I'm in control. <laughs> I like that. My house stays neater. I don't have as many dishes to do. I don't cook as many meals. Things don't get broken. But it's that idea of comfort, of routine, of things not changing. Well, when Paul was writing to the Corinthians, which were studying this, this winter and spring, he was writing to a church body who was resisting change. He had founded the church in Corinthians in A.D. 50 or 51. And if you look in the, you don't have to do that right now, but if you want to find out about how the church started, you can look at the book of Acts chapter 18, and it records the beginnings of the church. But what Paul's writing to is he's writing to a congregation that has fallen back to their old patterns of life. They were a young body of believers in a secular culture, and they were, moving, they were not moving towards maturity. Now, many of you may be familiar with the Apostle Paul, but I want to first start off by giving you a little background about him. So the Apostle Paul, pictured there in a, in a painting we don't have an exact description of him, but we're told that he was, um, sh some of the ancient writings say that he was short, 
of the shorter size, he was balding, and he had quite an eyebrow on him, and I mean singular. So you get the idea that he wasn't um, that impressive to look at. He wasn't appealing to look at. But he's this amazing apostle who founded several of the churches in Asia Minor and in Europe. He had a unique status in that he was born in Tarsus in Turkey, and he was raised, he was a Jewish man, he was raised there in the Jewish tradition and trained under Gamamil, but he was also a Roman citizen. And he took full advantage of both his Jewish and Greek culture, Roman citizenship in his ministry. He used that to his benefit to reach out to those around him. He was not one of the 12 disciples, but he had the authority of an apostle. And you'll see in this letter, that's one of the things he keeps saying to the Corinthians. He says, I have the authority. I am an apostle of Jesus. I encountered him on the road to Damascus. He wrote 13 letters in the New Testament. Out of the 27 books total, he's written 13 of them. He, um, at the start of his ministry, he spent most of his time in Jerusalem, but then he, tra- he began his travels to Asia Minor, to Greece, to Rome, and he did three different missionary trips, and all of those are recorded in the book of Acts. His teaching methods, usually when he went into a new town, he would start first in the synagogue. He'd preach to the Jewish people first, and then from there he would go on to the Greeks. As his name became known and around, and as his preaching expanded throughout the the area, he encountered greater and greater opposition, and he suffered severe physical um, hardships, social hardships. He was rejected by both Jewish, Jewish people and Gentiles. He was whipped. He was stoned. He was imprisoned. He was treated with indignity. He was banished on several occasions, and as we know, he spent his last years imprisoned in Rome. His influence, though, as a theologian and a thinker throughout the later development of Christianity has been incalculable and all-embracing. And I've got this up on the slide here, but you'll see that he was the first Christian thinker to structure the message of Jesus and his immediate followers into definite doctrines. Pretty awesome. He took his giftedness and all he had learned, all he had been trained in, and created doctrines for us to study today. He took the basic facts of Jesus' life and his main formulation of doctrine and molded them into simple terms of a Semite and a Judaic thinker, which means he translated it into terms they could understand, terms we could understand. He used his Hellenistic, his Greek background, and his systematic training under Gamamil, And he translated both facts and doctrine into a broad theological synthesis characterized by universalism of salvation. So he taught us about the doctrine of salvation for both Gentiles and Jews, everyone's included. To the intricate theory of grace, it is by grace you are saved, not by works. This was a powerful doctrine that influenced Dr. Martin Luther King, one of our great theologians who has influenced the Protestant faith. And he explored the central function of Jesus as both man and God, fully divine and fully human. Huge doctrine to understand for us. So he was an incredible thinker, and he had incredible influence on all of us. So that gives you a bit of background on Paul. Now I want to talk a little bit about the area of Corinth. As I said, he visited the area, the city of Corinth in 50 AD, 
and it was, this city was five times larger than Athens. Its population was around 800,000 people. It was considered one of the most beautiful, modern, industrious cities in, of its size in Greece. And at the time, it was the capital of Greece. And I've got a slide up here showing you the location of it. You can see that it's in the southern part of Greece. And it's located on an itmus, which is that narrow strip of land. And that was a four-mile strip of land which separated um, Greece from the mainland, from Macedonia. And so this was a crucial, a crucial area to control because on either side of that, what you'll see as you're looking at the map, ships would come into one harbor, and Corinth is located right in between. They'd come into one harbor, they'd dock their ships, and if they were small ships, they would actually transport those ships across on a path, a rocky path, to the other side of the Itmus, and then put them in the other sea. And what this did was it saved them the long journey of going all the way down around southern Greece, a 450-mile journey. So basically, it was a connection between Asia and the Mediterranean. So powerful controlling position, an important port. And if it was a larger ship, they would just take the cargo, and they would transport that across to the other side. So it saved people miles and miles. And so as that, this city became very wealthy and very well known in the ancient world during Paul's time. The population of Corinth was very diverse. Many of the people were Romans. Many people were from Syria, from Egypt, from the Mediterranean. Many were Jews. So it was very diverse. A lot of them were freed slaves. Uh, Julius Caesar established the city of, had it rebuilt. It was destroyed. Ancient Corinth was destroyed back in 146 BC, but Julius Caesar rebuilt it in 46. And so when Paul's coming to it, it's a fairly new city. And what that means is that the social um, strata was not set in stone. Because it wasn't an ancient city, there was more mobility between social status. And this became one of the things that you'll see in the Corinthian letter that people are appealed to. They want to go up the social structure. That's one of the very key things that, they're, that they focus on is social status. And it's very important to them. Uh, the religion in Corinth included cults to gods of Egypt, Rome, and Greece, and idolatry flourished. And in the next slide, this is a picture of Corinth today, the ruins of it, which just looks incredibly beautiful. I would love to go there. This is up in the upper left one. You'll see that's the columns left over from the ruins of a temple to the goddess Apollo, or the god Apollo. And down below is the main street, which led from the harbor into the marketplace. And that marketplace in there would have been where Paul would have been doing his tent-making skills. So it just gives you an idea. I just want to give you kind of a visual of where he was at this time period. Because sometimes it can feel so distant to us when we read these scriptures, like they don't seem real. But this is a real and actual place. And that mountain in the background, that's called, I believe it's called a Corinth. I think I'm saying that right. And on top of that was a temple to the um, goddess Aphrodite. And one of the things that Corinth was known for was prostitution. And Aphrodite, you know, is the goddess of love. And so it's said that at one point there was over a thousand prostitutes in the temple. And at night they would come down into the city. So it was very well known for that. William Barclay um, 
the theologian or and commentator says that Corinth was known for its wickedness and for its prostitution and for luxury, drunkenness, and filth. And he said oftentimes, and I think your study says this too, as you'll get into it, that the word Corinth, it just came with a, it became like a slang for, you know, talking about someone who was into that, those kind of things. So the problems that Paul addresses in his letter, um, I took a snippet from David Garland, and I'm going to read that to you, this next slide here. It says, the Corinth church caused Paul much anguish and concern. Paul had to deal with a church overcome by vanity and desire for honor, social status, and distinction. He challenged important persons in the community for their ethical misbehavior and their association with adultery. But the guilty parties did not accept his discipline passively. And we're going to walk through that. We're going to see how he challenged, how he had to come forward and challenge people with their, the way they were leading the people astray. And he's going to challenge people, too, with their um, ideas of being after worldly things, embracing worldly things, going back to their old ways. His bold rebukes caused him to lose face, and they sparked deep resentment, caused the people that were causing the issues <clears throat> to lose face, and they sparked deep resentment. So this was a church that was not a happy, cohesive place like we would hope. In turn, these people counterattacked by challenging his motives, his methods, and his personhood. And so that's why I was telling you about his appearance. He wasn't really a person that you would assume would be a great teacher, speaker, and someone that you would automatically follow. But he, he has to protect himself several times, and you'll see throughout this letter, he is constantly reinforcing that he's an apostle and that he, is, he has earned the right to be heard before them, that he's a true follower of Jesus. The result is some members continued to be avid supporters of Paul, while some wavered, and some comprised a determined element of resistance to his leadership. So while he's trying to disciple and love on this church, within the church is a continued group of people who are against him, expressing resistance to his leadership. And for a leader, that is so challenging. And it's heartbreaking. It gives you an insight into Paul's heart, too, because here he is wanting the best for this church body, but yet they're resisting it. They're accusing him of not wanting the best. And they're accusing him of, of things that he's like, all I want is for you to grow in Christ. So that gives you a background of the church. Now, if you'll look at your study on page 13, you'll see there's a timeline. And I'm sorry if this is a, information, a bit information heavy right now. I just want to get you a, a few basic facts, though, before you start. On that timeline on page 13, it's in the right-hand column. You'll see it over there. I've written down, she, the author put in some verses, but I wanted to fill out a few more verses for you because this is important. The chronology is as you read this letter, you're going to notice that Paul refers back to a, another letter in 2 Corinthians and if you go back to 1 Corinthians, you'll realize that he's referred back to another letter. Paul actually wrote four letters to the Corinthians, but we only have two of them recorded in our Bible. And so by the first one up on this slide, I just underlined the ones, the scripture references that I want you to add to your timeline. And that's just for any of you that want to read more about it. 
and find those anchors of what his story was and where those letters are referenced. So when he found the church was Acts chapter 18. The letter that was lost, they have that one in there. It was 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 1. Then he wrote 1 Corinthians. Then he made a sorrowful visit to Corinthians after he wrote 1 Corinthians. And that's when he realized that his, the people were not responding well to him and were challenging him. And that's 2 Corinthians 2, 1. Then he writes a very painful letter that he refers to in 2 Corinthians, and we don't get to see that one, unfortunately, but he refers to it in 2 Corinthians. And that letter is lost. Then he writes 2 Corinthians, which is what we're studying. And then he makes his final visit to Corinth, and that's recorded in Acts chapter 20, verses 2 through 3. So your study is entitled, All Things New. One of the key verses in 2 Corinthians 5, chapter, or chapter 5, verse 17, is Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. You see, the Corinthians were in a long process of becoming new, just like we are. The old had gone but they were struggling with letting it go. They were struggling with letting go of the comfortableness, comfortableness of the routine, the familiarity, the feeling of control of what they were used to. And they were sliding back into the things around them, the culture, things that made it easier for them. But Paul is reminding them the new has come. He calls them to grow and to live in their faith, in their identity in Christ, and he says, Christ is the ultimate. The new has come. The old creation has gone. In Romans 12, verse 2, Paul says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You know, we periodically, we have to renew our driver's license or our credit cards or maybe get recertified at work or we renew magazine subscriptions, etc. And what Paul is saying, you need to renew your mind. And this isn't something that we do periodically. This is daily, ladies. To live in our culture, to be surrounded by the constant messages that we are, we need to keep renewing our mind by being in his word, by listening to God's voice, by sitting with it, by letting it sink in. And my challenge to you is to do that this new year. As we look at this study, all things new, I want to ask you, will you allow God to do something new? Will you allow him to begin something new in your life? Will you let go of the old ways? Will you commit to being the church that God has called us to be? There's a story that I want to close with. There was this, um, I heard this at a women in ministries conference probably about 15 years ago, but it has stuck with me ever since. And I'll do my best to repeat it as well as the speaker there did. But there was this little girl and she had this little um, fake string of pearls, little dress costume jewelry pearls, and she would put it on every day. 
And she just loved these pearls, and she felt so special when she put them on. And she'd, each morning she'd put them on, and then she'd play through her day. And then at night when she'd go to bed, she'd take them off, she'd put them in her hand, kind of tuck her hand under her pillow and her head on her pillow, and she'd go to sleep holding on to this little set of costume pearls. And each night her dad would come in, and he'd say, Olivia. She said, yes, Daddy. He said, Olivia, do you know that I love you? And she'd say, yes, Daddy. I said, Olivia, do you know, do you trust me? She'd go, yes, Daddy, I trust you. And then he'd say, Olivia, will you hand me those pearls? And she'd be like, no, Daddy, no, I'm going to keep these right here under my pillow where they're safe. This would go on each night. Olivia, do you love me? Yes, Daddy. Olivia, do you trust me? Yes, Daddy. Olivia, will you hand me your pearls? No, Daddy, I'm just going to hold on to them. And night after night, this went on, year after year. One evening, the daddy comes in and he goes, Olivia, do you trust me or do you love me? She says, yes, daddy. Olivia, do you, tr do you trust me? She says, yes, daddy. Olivia, will you hand me your pearls? And Olivia slowly takes her hand out, her hand's quivering, she's shaking. She's like, pulls it out gently lets her fingers unwrap from around the, the tight grip they are in the pole on the pearls and she hands them to her dad and her dad gently takes the pearls takes them he slides them in his one pocket pulls out from his other pocket he pulls out a set of genuine pearls and he said here Olivia this is what God is asking you will you embrace the new Will you let go of that old imitation set of pearls so that he can give you the real pearls, the pearls of the new creation in Christ? Let me pray. Lord, I thank you that you are a God of new beginnings. I thank you that we do not have to cling to the past or the familiar or the things that make us feel false security. I thank you that our security is only found in you, that our truth is only found in you, that our security, our love, our worth is found in you. Lord, I pray for each of these women here today. I pray that we start this adventure this year 2017 with letting go of the old and embracing the new both in our personal lives and our lives collectively as the body of Christ, as the bride of Christ, as the church. Lord, let us not be fearful when change comes, but let's embrace it knowing that you are in all things. You are in control. And you are always about doing something new and beautiful. In Jesus' name, amen.